ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier, and along with Kate Spencer, I host Forever 35, a podcast about the things we do to take care of ourselves. Join us every Wednesday with guests like author Phoebe Robinson, chef Samin Nosrat, actress Busy Phillips, and even former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. On Mondays and Fridays, we have mini episodes where we answer listeners' questions on everyday problems like how useful a butt mask really is, how to deal with a petty friend, or how to relax after a long day. So join us Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on Forever 35, where we're not experts, but we are two friends who like to talk a lot about serums. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Welcome to the uh, Books of the Year podcast, and we are under new management. You still have me, Matt Williams, thank goodness for that. But uh, we have a new lead presenter. I'm delighted about this new lead presenter. Uh, You will know him from the raft of thrillers that he's written uh, that you'll find all over your bookstores. And uh, and, and obviously presenting the telly, uh, doing the the news on the telly. I believe that's that's how uh, we refer to it. Uh, He is Tom Bradby. Tom, excellent to have you on the podcast. Welcome to the Books of the Year. Matt, thanks so much. And, you know, nice to have a proper broadcaster, dare I say. I mean, you know, I don't Quite wanna, right. Well, you know, I don't want to make a point of it. And I, I would like to think of this, honestly, as less of an audition and more of a coup. I mean, Simon's a great, <laughs> you know, he's a, he's, a, he's a great guy and everything. I'm not denying that. But um, he's well past it, let's be honest. And, you know, maybe never Quite was right. it. Quite right. If we're being really, if we're being yeah, really no, honest. Mean, and I think, if, I think if, a much yeah, younger... Yeah. I think a much younger guy, a stripling, a mere fifty-five. I think that's what I think that's the way to go. So let's just uh, let's just uh, crack on and make an all-new podcast. And on that subject, my first guest on the all-new Coup podcast uh, from Radio Baghdad is the one and only Simon Mayo. I never had this problem with Lee Child. <laughs> right, well, let's let's start by looking at the cover, which is a very, very arresting cover. Um, now, I'm going to guess, Simon, that this is the one... Is this the one that we're going to be seeing in our uh, bookshops? Uh, it's a black and white, mainly, cover, and it's a sort of mirror image. So um, uh, you've got uh, Big Ben, House of Parliament at the bottom, and that's at the bottom of the, uh, of the front cover. The top cover is a cathedral, but it's upside down. And and then straight through the middle of the page, you've got these wavelengths, sort of sound wavelengths, and then TikTok in big orange letters. Simon Mayo, Sunday Times best-selling author. Once you hear it, the clock starts ticking. Now, is that cover the one that we're going to be seeing on our, uh, on our in our W. H. Smith? No, it's not. Uh, oh right, right. It, 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 it is. It's it, a general impression. It is, but. Uh, the main difference is that the uh, the one that's in the shops it is a reverse uh, image, but the uh, on the bottom it's um, uh, Tower Bridge and the Shard, and the upside down bit at the top is Salisbury Cathedral. So that's still the same, but the House uh, the House of Commons went through early, and I and I'd said I think that feels a bit like a as though it's going to be set in the House of Commons, which it, <laughs> which it definitely 
isn't. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's uh, Tower Bridge, the Shard at the bottom, and then it's Salisbury Cathedral at the top end. Well, listen, all terrible gags aside, um, it's a cracking read, Simon. It really is. It's, so if you're pondering uh, a summer read and listening to this, I would urge you to do go out and buy it. It's, it's absolutely brilliant. It grips from the first page. Can't say that about a lot of thrillers. And it never lets you out. And there's loads of things I want to ask about it, but I don't want to give anything away. So could you give us a summary uh, of the kind of plot and the pitch, if you like, the elevator pitch, and maybe a bit more, because it's it's quite involved and it's really interesting. Thank you for your thank you, thank you for saying uh, nice things. Well, it's basically uh, it starts off as being a novel about tinnitus, uh, something which uh, which I've had for a, for a while. And whilst I was in the process of, uh, I mean, everyone knows what tinnitus is. We've all had it after listening to music too loud or it's been a bang or something and you've got some ringing in your ears and everybody knows what it sounds like. They also know that it isn't an actual sound. It is the appearance of sound, but your brain thinks that, you know, you've got this ringing in your ears. And that is subjective tinnitus. But there is another type of tinnitus called objective tinnitus, which means that other people, and it's incredibly rare, but it means that other people, if they're sitting close enough, can actually hear a sound which is being generated by your ears. And that was the starting point for the book, and it made me think, okay, well, okay, well that's, that's intriguing. So at the beginning um, of the book, which revolves around three people, Kit, who's the, uh, an English teacher, head of English in a London school, and his daughter, he's a single uh, parent. His, his wife has died a few years previously. Um, Kit has a daughter called Rose, and he has just started, well, comparatively recently started a relationship with a vaccine researcher called Lily, who is the mother of a daughter who goes to the same school, which is how they, which is how they met. And um, very early on, Kit, in one of his lessons, hears a clicking noise, which he just puts down to nothing in particular, thinks that someone's got a phone on or it's the radiators or something like that. Then he goes home and... Uh, Rose, his daughter, shows him uh, a video of um, something that's happened on the way back from school. And that is one of her friends has an ear which is generating noise and it's clicking and it's very, very funny. And they're, ma they're having all kinds of fun with it and then it turns out that other people around the world are also having um, strange sounds coming out of their ears, which is clearly preposterous. So to start with, it's treated as something that's humorous, uh, and then it gets serious because it does have serious implications for people's hearing, and then the, this objective tinnitus gets worse, and then people start going deaf, and it all, it all goes belly up from there. So, so, the, so the beginning of the book is very much uh, about hearing and about, and about tinnitus, and it kind of takes a few left turns, and what starts off as being a book about tinnitus ends up about being, you know, it's about something else altogether, but... Maybe you can probe and, you know, uh, and I'll reveal all under your relentless questioning. <laughs> um, a couple of things. I mean, amazing title, TikTok, one of the best titles I've ever seen for a thriller. You know, we, we're always putting ourselves under pressure to have a sort of ticking clock in, in thrillers to sort of tighten the tension. And here it is right on the front cover and in the title. So that's great. But the, t the tension does tighten. Obviously, one of the things that I found most notable about it is the sort of national, international panic that's beginning. So I guess my first question is, it feels like 
in a really interesting, different way, a COVID book. But hearing you talk about the idea there, I'm less sure about that. So how much was it influenced by what we've been all been through the last couple of years? The sort of opening scene, which involves um, this 14-year-old girl, Rose, being thrown off a, thrown off a coach, thrown off a, uh, a bus, because she has this um, new, slightly strange clicking coming out of her ears. Uh, and it's a bus full of people wearing masks because they're afraid of this new... Uh, illness which people have been talking about. I wrote that four years ago before, um, and I, that's all I had. I just had a scene and I wanted to write a book about tinnitus and that was the, that was the opening scene. And I then put it away and, uh, you know, as you do, started writing other things. I think it was before Mad Blood Stirring, actually, anyway. But I, it was just an opening of a book that I had and, and I'd started to, to work on it again as COVID hit and... I then thought, I'm not sure this is, what, you know, do I want to write a book about what appears to be an epidemic? I mean, it isn't, it is an epidemic book and it absolutely isn't an epidemic book, which is why the cover has nothing medical and the title has nothing medical uh, on it, because I wanted people to know that even if uh, you've been profoundly affected by the epidemic and the lockdown and everything that we've all been through, this isn't uh, a repetition of all that. There is some muscle memory uh, of COVID from the characters in the book. Uh, so it's, it's there as something that everyone has been through. And when, when it does start to, to hit, the schools shut very, very quickly because they remember how slow everybody was to react last time. I was concerned about writing what real life. What is real life like? When you, go to, when you go to a football match, when you go to the pub, when you walk along the street, when you go to the shops, what is real life like? This is sort of in the middle of lockdown. How, how can you write about real life when real life has changed completely? So originally I was going to set the book in the, a couple of years in the future, which is, you know, a cheat, obviously. Um, but then as things settled down, I realised that I could just set it in the present and everybody had the pandemic as muscle memory as well. And there's a scene where Lily puts her hand in her pocket and she discovers a, uh, one of the blue masks, which has been there for a couple of years. And so she's like, oh, right, I'll put that on because I've remembered it. So it's there um, in the background. Um, but really, I'm hoping that people realise that it's about something else other than another epidemic. But it's a, you know, it, it is a concern and it was very much a concern as, as I was writing it. I, I think that's a real strength of the book is that you set it in a world where everyone remembers uh, the COVID pandemic. Therefore, you're not suddenly finding yourself going, oh, right, is this just another book about a pandemic? I also think, and I, I'm, I'm really interested, intrigued to hear you say that you wrote that opening chapter um, before that, you know, everything happened over the last two years because Mad Blood was back in 2017, 2018. Yeah, it was 2018, yes. that. So, so... Um, so that was obviously well before COVID hit. And that opening chapter where you've got uh, people basically on a bus and they uh, it is a state of heightened uh, sensitivity. Everyone is listening out for anyone who's clicking and is obviously very suspicious of anyone who's wearing earphones, which obviously would therefore muffle the sound of clicking. And they don't want anyone on that bus who's got uh, clicking eardrums because that, that means they might be spread it, spreading the disease. I love that opening chapter. And I'll tell you what it reminded me of, and I think I might have mentioned this to you since. It reminded me of the opening to um, a movie that I know you like and I really like called uh, A Quiet Place, where you are 
straight into the middle. There's no preamble. There's no, and then this happened, and then that yeah. happened. It's you are straight in there. And you, you you just understand what's going, oh, right, they're, they're all having to be quiet. Well, in this, you realize straight away that there is clearly a problem with people clicking and also that there's a there's a real panic about what happens if someone is clicking. Was that, a, I mean, that, I suppose it's, it's redundant given that you've said you, you wrote this so long ago, but was that in your mind at all, the idea that I want to take people straight into this rather than doing a bit of preamble beforehand? I do think it's very important we always ask people on this podcast about, um, you know, how long do you give a book? And I do think that the answer to that for most people is not that long. Um, and it's very important to grab people uh, very, very early. If it reminded you at all of A Quiet Place, then, then that's thrilling because I did indeed love that film and the follower and I thought it was uh, a work of genius. Um, and I think... It's, the, I'm, you know, I'm a radio person, so therefore sound and hearing is very, you know, is very important. So maybe that's, that's not coincidental. But that opening, the opening scene with Rose getting thrown off the bus, I thought I was going to have to rewrite it quite a lot. But actually, it ends up being in the book twice. So, so, I, so I've stuck with it. Um, and I think that uh, in... It, in Knife Edge, there's an opening scene which has lots of people dying and then uh, the central character responding to that and telling the, and telling the story as a, uh, as a journalist uh, working for the news agency in London. And, and I thought, OK, well, that 30 pages has got people there and there's a certain pace in, and it sort of injected some pace, which then means you can back off just a little bit. And I, I was trying to do that again really to inject so much pace into the into the opening that if you've just picked it up uh in a you know in an airport lounge and you're just flicking through and you just give it a couple of chapters then hopefully you'll be hooked because i don't think we've got much time you know people are easily distracted and i um and i so i try to keep the you know the pressure as rel relentless as possible and give people as little opportunity to put the book down as possible I, I mean, it, it obviously also works, Simon, because, um, as, I, as I said before, this is a book set in a world post-COVID, so that the characters all know what we know, what, what was going on um, two or three years ago. But there are, even though this isn't a pandemic book, there are some of those touchstones that we're all familiar with. In other words, vaccinations, conspiracy theories. The one thing that sort of um, is different in your book to what, thankfully, um, didn't really happen uh, in in the outside world in during COVID. Is how quickly society just breaks down. Was that something you wanted to have fun with? This idea that it goes. I, I mean, it's within days. It's you know every man, woman, and child for themselves. What I well, okay. I mean that that, that is that is certainly true because I think uh, again it's the it's that memory which is very vivid in people's minds of what they've been through in the last couple of years. So people react, maybe overreact, to what's happening based on what we've all gone through. But the but what I wanted to do is to is to not write about society's collapse from from a macro point of view. It's very much a micro point of view. So we stay focused all the way through on Lily, who's our vaccine researcher. Uh, Kit, who's the head of English, and uh, Rose, his daughter. We follow them. Sometimes they're apart, and sometimes they're together. At the end of each chapter, there's a there's a kind of a, there's a few lines about what's happening in the rest of the world. But I'm really not interested in what's happening in the rest of the world. I'm only interested in what's happening to our three characters, because 
I just think that's inherently more interesting and more and more exciting and makes it more more personal. You know, another way of telling the story, you, you know, you could certainly have made it more of a macro uh, approach to this. So there are hints of, about what's happening in the wider world, but mainly it stays close. And I certainly think that obviously um, we'll be telling stories which have originated in in the pandemic for another 50 years in the same ways that we're still finding different ways to tell stories about World War II. So it is a pandemic and it isn't a pandemic story. You know, it's got its own tale to tell. And as I said, I started writing it four years ago and the original idea is the same. It's just that it's impossible to write a story like this where people wear masks without any any reference to what we've been through um, in in the last couple of years. Simon, can I ask you a question that I get asked quite a lot? And I actually think it's a really good question about the idea and the characters and what comes first and what the process was. And if I can bung a couple of questions in one, do you have lots of ideas and it's a kind of survival of the fittest or do you get one kind of clear idea where you think, ah, I want, I want to write that. That really grabs me. And the, the other thing about this novel is, you know, we've talked before, I know, you get a lot of novels where the author clearly had a great idea, but the realisation just isn't involving enough. But what makes this stand out to me is it's a great idea. It grips from the first, but the car- you know, I found it, I don't want to give anything away, but I found it quite emotional as it progressed. And that's obviously because the characters are very real. So, so what, and the little story at the heart of it, which you were just referencing there, you wanted the focus to, to be on, not the kind of big picture, which, you know, which I think is a really clever thing to do and the right thing to do. So, so what comes first? The idea, the characters, does it, does it come together? Does it come in a steady progression? How does it work for you? I think it's sort of like, uh, if I, I don't know whether I could use an artistic analogy, but I, I, I think it starts off as a, an ink sketch or a, just a pencil sketch of an idea, which was the, which was the idea which I mentioned at the beginning, which is that of um, objective tinnitus and how could I make that contagious? So that's the central idea because you cannot make tinnitus contagious because it is not, there isn't a disease, so there isn't a germ, so there isn't an infection, so you cannot pass it on. So how could I, you know, how could I get over that slightly um, problematic scientific issue? So, <laughs> make, so making, so that was, so that was the first, that was the, that was the germ of the idea, which was what would, what would it be like if everybody had this thing which I had, um, and then how, so how could you make this thing contagious? So that that was that was the germ of the idea, um, and from and. F- from that idea, from that kind of pencil sketch, more detail came in. And I knew that I wanted to keep it absolutely on a, on a close focus. Um, I knew that I wanted it to stay as a sort of a family. Um, so it's kind of a new family in as much as, as I mentioned, Kit, the, the English teacher, his wife has died a few years previously and he and his wife uh, had a daughter called Rose. And he is paranoid about illness and he blames himself for not spotting that his wife's cancer had developed as fast as it had so he and he blames himself for that so he's very protective about his um slightly tricksy daughter actually just a note on the uh, on the daughter rose is 14 um the only this is a this is a nerdy kind of writer's point uh, there are two point of view characters so we we see the story told by kit and by lily and 
I did think that maybe Rose the Daughter would be an interesting point of view. And uh, my editor pointed out that, in his opinion, if I let Rose be a point of view character, she would take over the novel. And, uh, <laughs> and, and <laughs> yeah. he was... He's a very wise man, and he was he was absolutely yeah. right because I think Rose is constantly kind of battling to to take over the book, but the way she doesn't is by not having her uh, as a point of view character. So it starts off as as which I think is answering kind of answering your question. It starts off as a pencil sketch, and the pencil sketch was the objective tinnitus and how to make that contagious, which is scientifically impossible. That was that was the start, and then filling in the detail about the best way of telling that story. Um, so Kit and Rose appeared first, and then Lily appeared um, afterwards. And I thought of a way of telling the story had to involve uh, teenage kids, really. And the best way of following that would be to have a teacher. So he, that's why he's the head of English at a, uh, at a central London school. So it's sort of then the detail comes in once I've got the the pencil sketch right, and then you step back and you look at that, and then you... And then you try again. So, does that even begin to answer your question, Tom? I'm not. Yeah, it does. It's really good. It's, you, it's really interesting. You raised the point of view uh, issue because you know much discussed amongst writers and perhaps not that clearly understood by readers. And I remember when I started out, my agent was just such a hard taskmaster. He's brilliant and a friend, but a very hard taskmaster on point of view. Like you can tell it from this point of view and this point of view, and you must be clearly delineated when you're moving from one to the other, but you can't just jump around on perspective. And then sometimes I read a novel and it does jump around. I think, oh, yeah. what, what on earth are they doing? They're breaking all the rules. And it's kind of even more annoying when sometimes it turns out to be really successful. It's like somebody who's worked out how to cheat at school. But anyway, sorry, that's not my, my next question. My next question is, I think, is another one that I think people really, really want to know about, which is your your process. Are you very disciplined? Do you write early in the morning? Do you write in long bursts? Do you find it quite easy? Are you a kind of 10-draft or a 2-draft writer? Can you just tell us a little bit about the process of putting that novel on the shelves? Um, the very idea that I have processes uh, is... Uh, it's, it's sort of really, I, well, I suppose I have because everyone who writes a novel has got some kind of process. I think I am quite disciplined um, because if I wasn't, um, nothing would get nothing would get done. So I, in theory, I write in the morning and I go and do the radio in the afternoon. That's how I try to divide things up. Then there's always things that get in the way, you know, real life, um, podcasts, uh, films to see uh, and so on. But I do... Because I'm an early riser, I find the first two or three hours in the day quite creative and I find that very useful and sometimes, and I can write before anyone else gets up. So even on holiday, I can spend the first few hours writing. Uh, I remember interviewing Jacqueline Wilson once and she said she writes every day, including Christmas Day. And so one, uh, one oh, Christmas wow. morning I found myself awake and up first and I thought, because, you know, teenage kids then, I'll be up for ages, so I, start, so I wrote. So I thought if Jacqueline Wilson could do it, I can do it as well. So just to prove the point, I did some writing on Christmas Day. And I think if you have another job like you do, Tom, uh, that if you don't, if you don't utilise every single moment of your time, it ain't going to happen. So I am, so I am disciplined. Um, I do work my way through it on a fairly relentless basis. But I am incredible. To my money, I'm incredibly slow. And I find it very, very frustrating. Um, that some days can be 
quite as slow as they are. And you know, if I, if some you know some days if I've got if I've done a couple of paragraphs that I'm happy with, I'm I consider that a good day's work. You know, and then other other times maybe there's a few thousand words that have got done, and I think okay, that well that that's even better. And some sometimes it flows, and sometimes it absolutely doesn't. Um, and I remember Terry, very fortunate enough to interview Terry Pratchett a number of times. And he used to talk about, you know, sometimes it is like running uphill with a very heavy rucksack on your back. And then occasionally you get a moment when you're running downhill and the wind's behind you and you think, hey, this is fine. You know, this is fantastic. Um, so essentially, I think I've, uh, uh, it's a very disciplined process because if I, if I didn't follow that discipline, it would never happen. And Steve, you know, Stephen King's book on writing, he always talks about sort of advice for, for young writers and uh, and people who think, I'm going to give it a chance. And he was the one that talks about trying to write, is it a thousand or two? I think he tra- says try working a thousand, try doing a thousand words a day, six days a week. And then he, he he follows some kind of process because that works for him. And there's no correct way of, of doing it. But I do find that, it you know, that, that discipline kind of works for me. Um, uh I, I'm fascinated by the idea Jacqueline Wilson writes even on Christmas yes. Day. It reminds me of Daley Thompson always gave that interview of, I always go training on Christmas Day because I know my competitors aren't. And it basically meant that all the competitors started training on Christmas morning. So it made no difference whatsoever. Um, I, I like, um, I, I want to take you back just briefly. And of my final question really is, I find right at the heart of this book is the relationship between Kit and Rose, between between father and daughter. And I I want to ask you about, you know, is was was that a relationship you particularly wanted to explore? Because I my instinct is it must have been. It can't have been something that just happened by chance. You decided to have a family uh, with, uh, with you know, Kit and Lily and then just decided, oh, and I'll have a daughter called Rose. I like to think that right at the start of this book, you decided, I, don't want, I want to explore the relationship between a father and his daughter. Is, am, am I right on that? Well, you're right and you're wrong. I, that wasn't what I set out to do, but that is what it became. So that wasn't the... The original idea was purely to write... Um, a, a book which was a page turner about um, a, a strange form of illness, about a strange form of death, deafness which was contagious. What is it? How has that happened? Where has it come from? And to try and answer those questions. As as the book progressed, the relationship between uh, Kit and his daughter Rose, it is. I mean, it's a it's a three way relationship. Actually, it's a four way relationship because the relationship with the dead mother is still kind of important and sort of hangs over everything that happens, and certainly hangs over everything that Kit and Rose do. But um, uh, occasionally, I get messages from my daughter who is reading it at the time, and she occasionally, if I'm in the same room or in the same house as she's reading it, she guffaws or reacts because she recognises things that she would have said <laughs> and things that I would have said. And I think if you're reading this and you've got a teenage daughter, there will be conversations which hopefully you've had or versions of it that you've had um, yeah. that, uh, that kind of, you know, that ring true. So I think I did not set out to write a book. At the heart of it was the father and the daughter, but it became... It became that um, all the way, yes. So because I wanted the, the, the focus to be relentlessly focused on those three people and their individual adventures and then their combined adventure uh, as the book comes to, to a conclusion, that that relationship between the father and the daughter is at the, um, 
is it the is at the heart of it yes this may seem like a bit of an odd question to ask of somebody who's a Sunday Times bestseller, and I've got a strong feeling this will uh, also be probably near the top of the list because I think it's I think it's great and it's very catchy and it's very contemporary and it's um, it's very gripping. But you reference in the back of the book, you very kindly uh, say thanks to the unofficial union, which uh, if you're listening to this is a really terrible gag we have about uh, being. B- b- basically writers who who have day jobs and there aren't that many of us and it's a slightly odd little club and I think one of the things we feel is that sometimes it's a little bit hard to get taken seriously as a writer because you have another job almost as as if you're doing it on the side which in one sense we are but I guess certainly in my head I'm, I'm not doing it on the on the side at all do you how do you feel about that I mean do you I mean do you view yourself as a writer now primarily do you feel you have something to prove you at ease with it you relaxed about it and uh, no I'm not at ease. I'm not at ease and I'm not relaxed about it and yes certainly I think I've got some absolutely I've got I think I've got something to prove um I I mean to go back to when, when I started writing which was uh, the itch books um which was the trilogy for uh, for kids and teenagers um the 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 working assumption when it was sent out to reviewers was that it was written by someone else and it just had my name uh on the front um and uh it, it the, i mean i think we quickly dispelled that but there was certainly for the first book that feeling that hang on he's he's a ra- he's a radio presenter you know what he can't what's he doing writing books and my my initial pitch to the, to the publishers was that i wanted i didn't want my name on it i wanted to write under a different name because if you if if the writer is famous for whatever reason, your reaction will be based on whether you like what that person does or whether you know, and whether you don't. So I just wanted to have a to do what um, our union colleague Jonathan Friedland does, which is to write thrillers under a different name, so that you didn't actually uh, judge him like that. But they, the publishers, sort of smiled and thought I was, you know, said, "Do you know how difficult it is to sell books? You've got a name that people recognise. It's going on the cover. Nice one. So that's the way it's going to be." Um, and I think now. People realise that you know that they're that they're thrillers, which or they're you know these are adult books, which should be um, judged along with everybody else's. But uh, I think with every single book, Tom, I've, I feel as though I've got something to to prove. I think you know, but I, I think I think that with every radio program as well. I just think that there um, there are people who will will judge you uh, based on your last radio show. There are people who judge you based on your last book. So I think, and you're only as good as your last book. So uh, yes, I do think, I, whether I, I think of myself as a radio person who writes books, you know, and, and I would like to carry on doing both if I possibly can. Um, one, one final question, which I know is a, a bit of a cliche as well of questions about books, but your book does cry out, film, 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 which which some, and everyone always says that about thrillers, and some do and some don't, and certainly as somebody who adapts a fair amount for screen, you know, you're you're sometimes looking at it and thinking, yeah, actually that's, I mean, I saw Crawdads last night, I don't know if you've seen it, and actually it's not particularly good, although I quite enjoyed it, but 
I, I left the cinema thinking that is actually, a re I love the book, but it's a really, really hard book to adapt to screen. You know, it jumps around in time. It, it's just, it's, you know, in one sense, it's a courtroom drama, but it's so much more. And I, and I think it's actually really difficult. This just screams make a film out of me. It's a great novel. It would also be a great film. Any thoughts on that? Well, on Crawdads, I didn't read the book. I have seen the, I have seen the film. I enjoyed the film, actually, but um, I know uh, it's, uh, it's not getting fabulous reviews from critics. Um, but, I, but I enjoyed it, and I thought Daisy Edgar-Jones did a very good performance at the heart of it. But, um, I, but to the point about, about this book, I mean, my expectations, I think, are... Uh, I, mean, I, I, always, <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, I obviously agree with you, Tom. It would make, it would make a fantastic um, movie, uh, TV series, uh, and so on. I think there would be an, um, a certain amount of nervousness about it precisely because of the area that that we've referred to which is it is pandemic inflected um and there was just how do we say this in the second half of the book um there's a lot of uh, uh there's a lot of uh, international um affairs um and foreign involvement and and i think there's a degree of uncertainty uh, internationally so I, so I would think people might be hesitant uh, about signing up the rights to it. I, I, I honestly don't know. I mean, it would be great if it, obviously it'd be great if it, uh, if it was, but I wonder if there will, there'll be some reticence based on the fact that we don't know, you know, I mean, the COVID pandemic is not over. So there might be some reticence based on that. And there are various international stories which are, running at the moment which definitely impact on this story and we don't know how they're going to finish either so and and there the final few pages of the book were rewritten just a few months ago um uh, yeah so i so i i think that the, the kind of uncertainty about the way the news is going to develop over the next 12 months might make some um film companies and tv companies go oh this might you know this might be tricky i hope i'm i hope i'm wrong i'm not doing a very good sales pitch am i uh, no, let me yeah, say. we're buying, we're buying, we're buying. Um, Simon, you keep saying you're a broadcaster. Not anymore, mate, because there's been a coup. We've taken over, Matt and I. And I must say, I think we've done a damn good job. Yeah, so that's it. Show. It's your show. <laughs> it's your show. Anyway, look, it's uh, Matt, over to you. But uh, Simon, it's been a pleasure. It's a great book, folks. If you're listening to this, go and buy it. It's a cracking, cracking summer read. Absolutely. It's called TikTok. It's by Simon Mayo. Uh, you're going to be able to hear his Q&A, the Q&A we do with all of our uh, writers. Uh, that'll be out shortly after this episode on the same feed. An outstanding start, I thought, to the Tom Bradby Books of the Year podcast. Well done, Tom. <laughs> and, uh, and, and looking forward to the next episode already. Can't, can't wait yeah, to hear right. the class, different class of guests right. we're going to get now that Tom's in charge, Frank. Moving on then. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio.
Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>